Hello and welcome to Lucina, highlights from the literature from Archives of Disease in Childhood for March 2016. My name's Robert Scott Jell. The first interesting uh, paper which I chose to feature this month actually isn't really to do with paediatrics but I think is interesting nonetheless, concerns toys and language development. Now, when I was young, my parents uh, probably told me that I spent far too much time watching television. And when my children were young, we complained they spent far too much time watching videos. Nowadays, of course, uh, children spend what we consider to be far too much time playing with laptops and interactive computer devices. Does this actually matter? There's a general perception amongst professionals and the public that children playing with these sorts of electronic toys actually don't develop proper verbal interactions and hence have their developments inhibited. There's actually not much evidence to support this view. Uh, there have been some surveys the, linking the amount of time children spend uh, on screen time to developmental outcomes, but there are so many compounding factors here it doesn't really mean anything. A paper in JAMA Paediatrics, interestingly a single author paper, there are very few of these these days, reported a study where 26 infants were recruited aged 10 to 16 months and for each of these the parent was supplied with three standardized sets of toys. One set consisted of electronic toys, a baby laptop, a talking farm and a baby cell phone. The next set was traditional physical toys, a wooden farm animal puzzle, a shape sorter and pictorial rubber blocks. And the third group were given books, which were board-type picture books suitable for uh, young toddlers. Each parent was asked to play with their child for 15 minutes twice a day using each of the three toy sets over a three-day period. So each parent-child dyad was exposed to each in a consistent manner. This was all done in the home rather than in the laboratory, and the outcomes were not directly observed by the researchers, but instead the interaction between the parent and the child was recorded with a listening device that was actually attached to the baby. This system is called the Language Environment Analysis or LENA system and that can record all the verbal interactions between the parent and the child. The software can then analyze that and come up with a, a sort of rating as to the quality of the interactions. What the study found was that interactions were significantly fewer during play with electronic toys compared with the other sets. There were fewer words spoken by the parent, fewer conversational turns, and by conversational turns they mean a verbal response by the infant to the parent or by the parent to the infant within five seconds of what they've just said. There were fewer content-specific words and less vocalization. Now of course this study was only short-term and couldn't possibly assess longer-term outcomes and there were only small numbers. The volunteer parents were mostly mothers, they were mostly white and well-educated, and it really probably only applies to that particular section of American society. However, the author claims that it's robust enough for child health professionals to actively discourage excessive use of electronic toys. There's an editorial with it which points out how popular these sorts of toys are becoming and the aggressive marketing techniques used by the um, software manufacturers that try and convince parents that these things improve a child's intelligence. However, I think we need to be aware that in toddlers language development is critical and that failing to optimise it may inhibit development of higher level skills later. Some of the children we see with poor language skills may to some extent have this contributed to in the 21st century by excessive use of these sorts of electronic toys. The next paper 
published in Pediatrics, investigates the worrying area of the link between children with a disability or some kind of congenital abnormality and the higher risk that they are acknowledged to have of being abused or maltreated in some way. There is a lot of literature out there suggesting that children with various kinds of disabilities are at more risk of abuse or, to use a much broader term, maltreatment. But is there a difference between some kinds of disabilities and others? A study from Texas chose three specific easily identifiable disabilities to investigate this. They chose children with Down syndrome, with cleft lip, uh, some with cleft palate and some without, and spina bifida. They have databases in Texas which made it possible for them to link the data in the statewide birth defects registry with the state Department of Family and Protective Services database whereby all children that have been subject to maltreatment investigations are recorded. They looked at children under two years who had evidence of having suffered any of a broad range of maltreatments that were subsequently substantiated and they were quite strict about the criteria for this. It had to have been substantiated by a ruling in a court and this included not just physical abuse but neglect and abandonment. The study involved uh, in total nearly 3 million children born over a decade and of these 3,700 had Down syndrome, 2,900 had cleft lip and or palate and 870 had spina bifida. Comparing the, all of them to the unaffected population they found significantly increased risks of maltreatment particularly for the cleft lip and palate children with a risk ratio of about 1.6 and for spina bifida with a similar risk ratio of about 1.7. What was interesting though, they didn't find any increased risk for those with Down syndrome. They were able to adjust for a whole host of socio-demographic and ethnic confounders in their very mixed population. And this included maternal age, which is obviously important in Down syndrome. And having done all the statistical correction, they found that the associations remained very similar. They also suggest that medical neglect may explain some of the increased risk in that the increased demands of the child's medical treatment may shift the threshold for diagnosing maltreatment. That is to say, if the child hadn't have been born with this disability, then they wouldn't have featured on the radar of the uh, child protection services. Or possibly it's just that the families have a lot more contact with professionals and thus issues that might otherwise be hidden are more exposed to scrutiny and they're more likely to come to the attention of the authorities. However, these don't really explain the difference between Downs and the other groups. I wonder whether it's people are more inclined to um, inflict abuse on their children with a physical disability rather than intellectual disability. Now, coincidentally, I came across two papers both relating to the use of bisphosphonates in two very different situations. Bisphosphonates are used increasingly in adult practice as more older people have problems with bone mineral density and have weak bones as a consequence of a whole host of unpleasant chronic diseases. It's now becoming more and more routine in adults. We've never used them anything like as much in paediatrics but their use is undoubtedly increasing over the years. Two systematic reviews have appeared looking at their use in two different conditions. The first one looked at osteogenesis imperfecta. Now OI, as we know, is perhaps the most severe group of conditions that cause weak bones in children and it can be a very disabling, distressing condition. 
the study from the Netherlands found 10 different studies of adequate quality involving about 520 children. They used different drugs. Only two used permidronate, which is the best known drug, and the others used different second and third generations. Bisphosphonate, ibandronate, niridronate, olpadronate, and risedronate. Now, all the studies showed bisphosphonate to be effective in increasing bone mineral density as measured in the lumbar spine, as measured by a standard DEXA, dual energy X-ray absorptimetry scanning. And most showed um, a significant reduction in the urinary markers of bone resorption, uh, although not all the studies actually looked at this. Obviously, what matters isn't so much the, the scans or the biochemical findings, it's how many fractures they get and most of these studies did show a significant improvement in fracture rates. Some also just dem demonstrated reductions in bone pain. Different routes were used, some oral and some intravenous, and they couldn't really decide which of these was best. Adverse effects are a concern, but they found that they really weren't that bad, with headaches, limb pains, and flu-like symptoms, all of which are well recognized, being mostly mild and reversible, and usually only occurring with the first dose when given intravenously. Hypocalcemia, which in theory could be a problem, turned out not to be. They weren't really able to uh, do sufficient comparisons to decide which drug was superior. The other review of bisphosphonates looked at children with cerebral palsy. Now we know that these children, with particularly those with severe CP causing immobilization, are much more inclined to get pathological fractures due to osteoporosis. Sometimes it can be a problem when this leads to um, accusations of abuse. Other factors such as poor nutrition and seizures may contribute to the problem. Now this review from South Korea only found four suitable studies, so there isn't a lot of information out there. Three of these studies used IV permidronate and one used oral al alendronate. Only one was actually a randomised controlled trial, so on the whole the quality wasn't good. They all showed significant improvements in lumbar spine and bone mineral density scores. The review uh, said nothing about either fracture frequencies, which is more important, or adverse effects. So it wasn't really very strong evidence for use of these in um, cerebral palsy. Now, obviously, the bone pathology in CP is completely different to OI, or even in the many conditions such as osteoporosis that are seen in adults. So we can't really extrapolate the benefits of bisphosphonates to their use in CP um, as things stand at the moment. They also point out some practical difficulties in doing DEXA scans in uh, very disabled children with CP and um, if these children are non-verbal it's quite difficult to assess whether they're getting any of the subjective side effects. I don't think uh, most people would suggest that this review constitutes any sort of evidence to start using bisphosphonates in CP, although in osteogenesis imperfecta I'm sure they use will become more and more routine.